left off discussing Solomon to Jerusalem, and we left off with, with an interesting fact about this period. There is no archaeological evidence, or very, very little archaeological evidence for this period. The remains of Solomon's palace, or David's palace for that matter, are out there. Um, the remains of Solomon's temple is not there, and that probably has to do with the fact that either the Babylonians utterly destroyed it, spoiler alert, the Babylonians are going to come in a lecture or two and destroy Jerusalem, or it had to do with Herod the Great. And Herod the Great rebuilt, the, when he built the Temple Mount and rebuilt the temple, he did like we do uh, in New York City at the, at the Twin Towers. He actually dug down below and excavated everything, which was not the common practice. The common practice was just to pack everything down and build on top of that on that mound, it's called Tell. Archaeologists like it because you start digging at the top and as you dig down, you find all these different generations. Herod the Great dug everything out and then built from scratch. It means there's nothing left for us to find. Um, and then we asked this question, I left with this question, is absence of evidence evidence of absence? It's a philosophical question. It's not just something that, we, that archaeologists talk about. Because no one has ever proved the existence of God, does that mean that God does not exist? Or um, because no one has ever proved uh, any any uh, evidence of Solomon's temple, does that mean that Solomon's temple didn't exist? And by a strict or what often gets called a minimalist definition, you have to say no. Right? No, it didn't exist because we have no evidence for it. And the question is, is that the proper methodology? Or do you look at other sources like texts? Or do you look at peripheral archaeological discoveries? Or do you look at expansions of areas outside of Jerusalem that coincide with that same archaeological layer that show evidence of a unified, centralized government uh, creating um, royal or uh, national buildings? Do you see at the same level all around Israel um, the same um, structures? Do you, see the same, do you see the same style of gates? Do you see the same style of walls? Um, are they in low strategic locations? Do they have the same architecture? And if you see that, is that evidence of a national buildup, a centralized government, if you will, even though you don't have it in Jerusalem? I mentioned some of the names of scholars who have basically, <coughs> A, made an end for themselves, and B, been vilified uh, for saying that no, Solomon never existed. And this debate rages on today. There are many scholars who say Solomon, if he did exist, wasn't a grand opulent king. That's just story, right? Um, because we have no evidence of it. And this, so the debate goes on. Um, and just so that you know, conservatives or uh, people who believe that the Bible is inerrant and um, never never says anything that's not true, obviously don't like these guys. We consider them heretics and have called them. I've seen it to their faces <coughs> online. Heretics because they they dare disagree with what the biblical text says, because these people are coming from the standpoint that the biblical text must be true, even if there's no archaeological evidence to support it and a lot of evidence to countermand it. There are other scholars who say, Solomon may have existed, but it wasn't like the Bible described, the Bible embellished. And other people say, no, Solomon existed exactly like the Bible said, despite the fact that there's no archaeological evidence for it, or very little. You notice I always say that, no archaeological evidence, or at least very little. And we'll, we'll show you why in a second. Yes? Yeah, same, the same thing. Usually people who say that there was no Solomon say that there was no David. I remember watching this scholar here, uh, Israel Finkelstein, who, by the way, is the co-director of the dig at Megiddo with Eric Klein, Eric Klein being the scholar who wrote your book. Eric Klein, right, wrote the Jerusalem Besiege book. They worked together. 
right? They have two different theories on Megiddo. Megiddo being the source of the word Armageddon, <coughs> right? The, the, the mountain of Megiddo. Um, and they interpret it differently. And one of them wants to see that level that's usually attributed with the 10th century in Solomon as uh, being, uh, Finkelstein says that it's, it's actually a later, it's, it's Omri, it's King Ahab and, uh, and Omri and, and that 9th century uh, group of people. So there was no Solomon. Uh, Israel in the north and Jerusalem, uh, and Jerusalem didn't really become a, a, a full state until uh, the 9th century. And Solomon and David was just kind of made up to give them a story, just like the Exodus was made up, just like Genesis was made up. That's what those scholars would say. Whereas other scholars would say, no, it's 10th century, and we have some archaeological evidence to prove it, which we'll look at in a second. Okay? Um, uh, I mentioned uh, Megiddo, I mentioned Finkelstein, who's been here to UCLA to speak, Eric Klein, who's been here. Um, and, and by the way, a quick 20 second comment on professionalism. Uh, I don't agree with every scholar in the world, obviously. And Israel Finkelstein uh, disagrees with some of the stuff that Eric Klein says, and Klein disagrees with Finkelstein on something. And they're colleagues. They're great friends. They don't call each other names. They do, if they do, it's a joke. And I disagree with them on some things, and we don't call each other names. It is possible in the academy to disagree with someone professionally, kindly, and not attack them personally, not vilify them, not create anonymous aliases and try to ruin their career, right? It's possible to do all that. And so I'm a big stickler for, you can disagree with me, but be professional, right? And I'll disagree with you, and I'll be professional. That's how the academy works. You're not going to agree with everything I say or everything that your colleagues say. And that's fine. That's how it should work. That's how debates work. But say it in your own name and be open about it. And be able to back up whatever you're saying. Okay, that's my 20 seconds so far. So again, I'm done preaching. Um, here's a cross-section of the ghetto. The, the, problem, the, the problem we have with archaeology is the data is the same, right? We all have the same data, right? The same stuff is there on the ground. The question is, how do we date it, right? So obviously this bottom layer, right, the oldest stuff is at the bottom on the right, um, is Canaanite, okay? And obviously the stuff at the top is Assyrian. We'll talk about the Assyrians a little later today. But the question is, what do you do with the 10th century and the 9th century, right? You go from late bronze, 12th century, 11th century, and then all of a sudden, uh, the traditional, the conventional chronology would see a united monarchy, a 10th century layer of Solomon and David here. And then they see Ahab, Jeroboam, um, that they're coming in in the 9th century, and, the 8th century, and then you see the Assyrians. <coughs> Whereas Finkelstein would say, no, 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 so there was no Solomon and David. That's just, we, the only reason we interpret it that way is because of the Bible. And what you actually have is no real development during the 10th century, and then in the 9th century, you get King Ahab, and he is responsible for building up the city. And the archaeological evidence we see elsewhere, outside of Jerusalem, attributed to Solomon, should actually be attributed to Ahab. Thus, he concludes there was no Solomon, there was no David. And then Jeroboam comes along later, and we should separate these two later. Okay, so that's the debate, and this debate goes on, and there's the same data, but it's just how one interprets the data. So. When I say that there's debate about whether these guys existed, this is what we're talking about. Keep in mind, there's no archaeological evidence for any of the patriarchs, any of the biblical patriarchs. There's no archaeological evidence for any exodus out of Egypt. You either believe the story or you don't. Wagon wheels in the Red Sea or the Red Sea doesn't mean that those wagon wheels were Egyptian wheels during the exodus. It just means somebody lost a chariot in the 
waterway. There's no evidence for any of this stuff. You either agree with the creation stories or you don't. You agree with the Exodus stories or you don't. It's not until you get to about the late Bronze Age, the 12th century, the, the period of the judges, Joshua and the judges, and especially down to David and Solomon, that we begin to see archaeological evidence for the existence of some kind of different peoples. And again, as we talked about, were those peoples always there and just kind of changed over time? Or did they come in from the outside and bring with them not only new pottery and new ways of doing things, but new stories? <coughs> That's the debate we're talking about with this. Yes. When you say different people, do you mean like culturally different? Yeah, ethnically different. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we can say they're all Semitic, but we're going to see a people called the Philistines that are going to arrive um, that are are uh, not from this area. They're, you know, they're from uh, Mycenae, they're from they come Crete, they come from kind of kind of what is now Greece in that area. These are these are the Sea Peoples. They're, they're often they're called Philistines, being representative of the Sea Peoples. And these guys came from elsewhere, and they kind of took up what is now the Gaza Strip. And then there were it's kind of uh, Israel's. And then if you read the Bible, it's kind of their arch nemesis, right? Every, every superhero has an arch nemesis. Sometimes more than one, and the the Philistines become kind of the arch nemesis for the Israelites in the Bible. Okay. Okay. Let's move on. Um, so here we have the, the modern Temple Mount today. Of course, you see the Dome of the Rock there to the north. Uh, you see the Al-Aqsa Mosque here, and you see this area of excavation here, just to the south of the Temple Mount, called the Ophel. Okay. There it is. Every week, come there and we're Trust me, I've deleted that thing eight times. Okay. Um, so they've been trying to dig down here. Um, they've moved about 300 cubic meters of dirt, about 10 million cubic feet of dirt here to excavate this stuff. It used to be uh, quite filled up. A lot of people um, oppose this excavation, which is why there's so little excavation done in and around the Temple Mount. It's a holy site to three faiths. Right? So we don't want you to get in. I'll just let you know there's a huge bulge in the wall uh, just uh, up beneath the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And at some point, maybe it takes a little earthquake or something, that wall will fall and the Al-Aqsa Mosque will be damaged. So the Israeli government is saying, hey, we'll come and fix the wall. And the people who are in charge at the top of the Harappa, of the top of the Temple Mount, um, the Waqf, right? They say, you're not coming anywhere near our Dome of the Rock. You're not bringing any construction equipment. You're not doing anything near, pardon me, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they don't trust each other. So they say, OK, you fix it. But we can't afford to fix it. OK, it's going to fall down. And then when it falls down, they'll blame each other. And it's gonna uh, so there's repairs that need to be made. There's things that need to happen. Um, just, just to the west here of the Dome of the Rock, they, they were putting up a new ramp. You can see a little ramp here where people can walk from the ground up to the top of the rock. Westerners, anybody can go up there now. You just can't go into the to the the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome Rock. And while they were constructing that, they were there was charges of apartheid and distrust. And that's the way it is. You've got one, the Palestinians, the Jordanians actually have control the top of the Temple Mount, and the Israelis control all around the sides of it. We're talking about this area here, the Ophel. We do have some inscriptions uh, from this, like um, a monumental old Hebrew inscription dating uh, to the Old Testament period, uh, excavated in the Ophel. Okay? Um, 
the question is how do you want to how do you want to date this? Uh, there is a, the, the, the inscription does uh, mention water. Right? So, this is Paleo Hebrew. It looks a little different from the block Hebrew that you see. Saying this is an older style of Hebrew. Um, is it a forgery? Is it legit? And if it's legit, when was it written? Paleo kind of goes out of use until we find it again in Samaritan texts. So we also find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Sometimes they intentionally use an old style block to try to make documents look older. But we have some evidence. The question is is it conclusive? Is it evidence? And it mentions water. I mentioned this one here, it mentions water. What does that mean? Does that prove Solomon existed? We don't know. Um, I should also mention the hold the gates. Remember, I told you there was eight gates of Jerusalem, and then I pointed you to this other set of gates. Um, there's a set of gates here in the south of the Temple Mount that kind of correspond to the, to the, the gates that we find on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. Okay? And they're, they're basically tunnels that go underneath the building and pop up in the center. So you don't have to walk up the outside. You actually walk through this tunnel, which goes right underneath the, the Temple Mount, uh, part of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then you pop out in here. And these are called the Holy Gates. Uh, and we don't, we're not sure the origin of the word. It may mean bowl, like the little animal that burrows under and pops up. We're not sure. Um, there's a western gate that has two door, doorways, and then there's an eastern gate that has three doorways. So you have this double doorway gate that goes underneath what is now the Al-Aqsa Mosque pops up on top of the Temple Mount. And they're both blocked today. We'll look at some more pictures of it here. Um, um, there was an Iron Age gate discovered, um, dating from somewhere around this period. Um, and she identified one of the buildings, the excavator bazaar, uh, one of the as a four-chambered gatehouse from the time of the Judean monarchy. And again, as soon as you do that, they say, okay, what's your evidence? To what else can you compare it? And that's the question. How do you interpret this? Is it 10th century Solomonic or is it 9th century from a later time period? Um, we have no temple. We have no palace. We have some very fragmentary archaeological evidence. Um, we do have the stepstone structure, the Milo, which we've looked at. We've got this uh, proto-Aeolic capital that we found. Um, this predates ancient Greece columns. We're all familiar with the, what are they, the Doric? the Ionic and the Corinthian style columns, the things that sit on top of a column, the capitals. Um, this is the earliest known, uh, pardon me, the earliest known Proto-Aeolic capital found in Palestine, I believe to date from the 10th century BCE. However, because we're not sure about the context of their find, it, was, it wasn't found in a sealed context, it could date as early as the 12th century or later. So we're not sure what to do with it. Again, here's something that looks to be early, but it wasn't found in a proper context, or if it was, people are disputing that. How do we interpret this, this evidence? We have parallels to Solomon Temple, Solomon's Temple elsewhere. The temple that is described in the biblical text attributed to Solomon. We have, we have very similar archaeological remains of other temples elsewhere that are very similar to that. Let me say that again. The description of the temple we have in the Bible uh, we have actual temples that fit that description of something very close to it elsewhere. Um, and then, of course, we have literary remains. And the other big question that archaeologists face is, are literary remains as reliable as uh, uh, remains in the ground? That is, if I find an art of palace and a building and an inscription that says, you know, I saw and built this, and then it has, you know, they didn't have coins back then, but it has other pieces of evidence that we know definitively dated to a certain person. That's evidence. But if we have a story about something that says, you know, Solomon built the temple, 
can we trust that as evidence? People of faith say yes, as long as the, the, the claim is being made in their book. Right? So if, a, if the claim says Solomon built it, uh, Jews and Christians will say, well, then yes, that's the word of God. It's reliable. Muslims might go, okay, maybe. Right? But if the Quran says it, Muslims will know this is the word of God, because that's their holy book. Right? And Jews and Christians will say, no, just because a book says something doesn't mean it's true, unless it's our book. <laughs> right? So this is the problem we have with holy books or scripture or literature. Just because a claim is made in a text doesn't make it true, at least to an archaeologist. And so the big question uh, as a scientist, as an archaeologist, is we obviously we're going to take the, the remains of the ground. Do we also, and how much do we allow text to influence our interpretation? That's the big question. Yes? Well, you said they found temples similar to the Solomon Temple. Is that like, like the surrounding area of like... Yeah, like in like uh, Syria. And okay, we'll look at some of them. Let's look at some of them. Um, first, here's the description. If we took the, the literary description okay, of the temple, Solomon's temple, from 1 Kings 6 and 7, and I encourage you to read it, right? especially if you're writing on the temple, this is a key text, um, and it, it would look something like this. right? You've got this front portico area, like a porch, and then you've got the main hall, and then you've got this debut in the back, this this uh, the Holy of Holies. So you've got kind of a front porch and a long hall, and it's covered into a main hall, and then this very, very special place in the very back. Okay? And you also see the two pillars out in front here. And then you have some kind of basin, some kind of massive bowl filled with water. Right? And then the altar out in front. And then lots of other decorations. And, and the Bible's very, very explicit about what it looks like. But if we had it today, it would look something like this. So let's let's actually analyze Solomon's Temple and I'll look at some parallels. <clears throat> two of the things that you'll find interesting is there are two pillars that are said to be standing out in front of the temple. And archaeologists will tell us that they appear to be freestanding pillars. That is, they didn't support anything. They're just pillars, kind of like an obelisk, like an Egyptian obelisk, right? Just a big pillar standing up there. And uh, archaeologists always have some questions. Anytime a bunch of men are establishing some kind of giant <coughs> shaft-like thing sticking straight up into the sky that's monumentally big, scholars can't help but think, boy, this guy is really trying to say something. Right? Whether it be an Egyptian obelisk, or whether it be you know, a spire of some sort, a big building, a big tower, or just two big pillars standing right in front. That said, it's interesting that there are two of them. Not just one big one. Okay. I gotta be careful how I sell this here. So you've got two big pillars sticking up into the sky, and he names them. Right? So and I don't want any uh, jokes about Anchorman or naming your arms or naming other parts of your body. But uh, these these pillars have names, right? One is named Boaz. Now we know the name Boaz from the story of Ruth. Ruth. Ruth is the name. Uh, Boaz is also the name of a character. Boaz means something like strength. But it could also be an abbreviation or, or a merge of uh, Baal, which is a god or a lord, god, is strong. Baal, az, Boaz. Maybe. Maybe. <coughs> um, then the other one, the one on the left, is Yahin. Yahin. Okay? And it means, when you hear that word Yah, right? So it means what? The divine name, the first part of the divine name, from Yahweh, Yah. 
and then pain any time of cough and a new or a mem is means he has established to set up. So what this literally means is God or, or Yah or the divine name has established this. So you got two pillars standing out in front. <coughs> there is a question of why there are two. Um, there is evidence, not just because prophets were saying stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, but there is evidence, archaeological evidence, that Israelites worshipped two gods, multiple gods. At least they worshipped the god Yahweh, who, was, who came to be the, the, the single monotheistic god, the one in which you believe and follow. And Asherah, he had a wife. Bill Deaver, an archaeologist in Arizona State. Arizona. Arizona. I always get them mixed up. Uh, Bill Deaver is an archaeologist, and he wrote a book called Did God Have a Wife? And it discusses this problem. We have inscriptions um, that say, uh, may you be blessed by Yahweh and his Asherah. And we know that Baal was said to have a wife. And so there is evidence, archaeological, in, in the, the land that says that uh, Israelites worship two gods. So some people said, well, yeah, you have to put one for each. And then later on, they changed the names of them because it's a monotheistic faith, after all. So they named them Boaz and Yahim. We don't know. We don't know. But there's two pillars in front of the, of the temple. <clears throat> there's also a bronze seed. The bronze seed. Now, we've already talked about the, the phenomenon. Eliade can talk about it. About water and religion. Basically, water is seen to be both chaotic, if it's a storm, and also purifying in religious context. For whatever reason, you've got this large body of water up front, just like a cathedral when you walk in, you get some holy water, you put it on, a mosque before you go in, there's running water, you wash your ears and your elbows and you walk in, okay? Uh, uh, Judaism has mikvah, mikvah, ritual bath, that you go in and you immerse yourself and you walk in, now you're ritually pure. So water plays a role in all these religions. Sure enough, we have a basin of water out in front. Why is it there? We don't know. Um, it was said to have been taken by Babylon when the Babylonians come in 2 Kings uh, 25. Um, maybe it relates to, just like the pillars may have related to Canaanite religion before, maybe it relates to God conquering some of the other gods of the sea. Remember, in a monotheistic religion, one god controls everything. But in a polytheistic religion, you have gods of different things. So you have uh, Mesopotamian uh, stories, creation stories specifically, that talk about Tiamat, right? right? This god, the goddess, this woman god named Tiamat. She was, um, she was terrifying. She was brutal. Brutal was the word I was going to say. She was brutal. <laughs> and, and she's depicted as just this absolute tyrant, just cuts people in half, a monster, right? I mean, the story of how she's defeated. And she's the god of water. Uh, the other one is Yah. The Canaanite, the, the creation cycle, the Canaanite religion, had a, a god called Yah, who's in charge of the sea, the god of the sea. Okay. By the way, what's the Hebrew word for sea? Yah. <coughs> Why not? Right? That's what the sea is. So it's the sea and the god of the sea. So it could be... Some people would say, no, back when they were polytheistic, this represented one of the sea gods. <clears throat> Others would say, no, this uh, is a monotheistic religion, so it represents God's power over the sea god. See how he's containing the sea in the bronze sea. Maybe. Okay. 
Um, we have evidence of God conquering the sea, specifically in the story of the Exodus, chapter 15. Um, you have uh, Moses, who leads them out, sings a song. Horse and rider be thrown into the sea. Basically, God was so much stronger than the sea god, he split the sea, he let the Israelites draw through, and then he collapsed the sea on the Egyptians who were pursuing them. See, God has power over the sea, or at least the sea god. That's the idea behind it. And then we, and then we uh, also see that other temples, Near Eastern temples, have a basin. There's an Apsu basin at another temple uh, that symbolizes kind of the waters of chaos. So there, there are other temples that have these same elements in front of the temple. Let's actually look at the temples themselves. Um, we already talked about the capital. Um, we've got a temple. There is a temple like this at uh, Tel Arad, at Arad, right here. Um, we already know that there's evidence of Phoenician or northern craftsmen who sinned. Remember when Hiram, uh, the king of Tyre, sent David lumber and said, hey, build a temple. We already know that they imported craftsmen, craftsmen foreign craftsmen. They came to help them build things. And at Arad, you have this long tripartite room. Uh, Tayanat uh, and also Angar have evidence of this. Let's look at Arad very quickly. Here's Tel Arad. And when you go to Tel Arad, you'll see a couple of things. One, you'll see a sign that says, can you guys read this okay? One thing you need to know about translating into foreign languages, spelling is optional. So this is the official sign. Now I should have frightened you. Can you see this? C-N-A-A-N-I-T-E, A-I-T-E. Okay, so they didn't do the spelling right, Canaanite. Anyways, um, spelling is kind of optional uh, when you're dealing with foreign languages. Number two, let me turn that back off. What you might see is the tower at a rod, and then you might see if you're in section 1B, uh, your TA standing there next to the tower at a rod. Very sexy. <laughs> and then if you go into the city, you'll find what they've dubbed as the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Now, I have a lot of videos uh, of Tel Arad that I'm not going to show you, and neither is Professor Heinrich going to show you the videos of us walking around. We went to Israel in 2006 and visited Arad, and we both had a dueling digital cameras like you see here. Those aren't on Facebook either. So, um, but when you go to Tel Arad, you'll go in and you'll see that there's kind of this holy of place that they've interpreted as a holy of holies. So in the back behind this long room, you have another place. So you have an example of this tripartite building with an altar or some kind of uh, sanctuary in the back. Tayanat on the left. Um, here you have Aindar on the right. Do you see the, the makeup? So these are temples we actually have evidence of. And you see columns out in front a long room and then a small room in the back. Okay, Same thing here. Columns out in front, freestanding, don't necessarily support something. These both date to the, to the 9th century, to the 10th century BCE. Small room in front, or a room in the front, and then a room in the back. So we do have evidence, archaeologically, that at least what is being described in the Bible is contemporary with other temples around at the same time. <coughs> That the, the description of Solomon's temple in the book of Kings is consistent with the description of other contemporary temples at other sites. So is that evidence that the text is telling the truth? It's up to you, but I mean that's that's what we have as evidence. 
Um, look at the Aindara temple here. You have your inner shrine, you have your main hall, then you've got reliefs uh, on the Aindara temple, and there's said to be uh, reliefs, paintings, all over the, the walls in 1st Kings 629. You've got pillars and a porch out front. You've got side chambers. I mean, it's a very consistent build to what's described in the Book of Kings. Let me show you something else with Angara. Am I going too fast? I'm going to let you write this down. This is all online, so you can print out. Did I put the Hezekiah notes up? Yes, I did, right? Anybody print them out? One person raise your hand. I know you have. Okay, good. We got them. Let me show you something else with Angara. Um, don't, don't, this is the same as before. I'm just, I'm just taking you through some pictures. Here you have a, a platform and a terrace um, up front. Right? You've got um, kind of an inner shrine. And what's this thing? Uh, you can't see it. Can it looks perfect on my screen, I promise. And on the PowerPoint, you can see it quite well. So I told you to print the PowerPoint. You can't really see it, can you? What is this thing, those of you who have the notes printed out in front of you? What's that thing right there guarding the gate? Say it really loud. It rhymes with harabin. Right? It's some kind of, it, it looks like a, what? A half lion or a half goat with a long beard and a human head and wings. So we find these all over the place guarding entrances to things. So the description of the Jerusalem temple or the Ark of the Covenant with cherubim on top of it seems to be consistent with what we find in other religions, which is either uh, confirmation to people who want to see the biblical text as accurately describing the, the Temple of Solomon. It's also disconcerting to some people because why? Think about this. It's a great test question. Yeah. They could have taken it from other temples since they made it up. Yeah. It, it means that the temple that we have in Jerusalem is just like any other, or at least built, constructed like any, all of the other temples, contemporary temples at the time. Now, does that take away from its holiness? Does that take away from its historicity? No. It just means that they were building temples like you build temples. Kind of like we build houses today like we built houses last week. And we build houses on the West Coast like we build houses on the East Coast. It takes a lot of special money to build you know, your own special house. Most people buy houses that kind of have a front door, three or four bedrooms, a roof, maybe two stories. Right? But for the most part, they kind of have the same floor plan. When you see the floor plan of a modern house, right, in an architectural drawing, you go, ah, that's a house. Right? You, don't, you usually don't say, ah, that's a church. Right? We know kind of what houses look like. Okay. Let me show you something else that's interesting in front of my dark. You see this. Two massive Bigfoot footprints, right, in front of the temple. And then in front of that, one temple, a one footprint in front of the temple. And then, of course, the entrance, the threshold into the temple. If you're constructing a temple, and you're the architect, and you put this in there, if you if you admit that you put that in there, right, there, I guess the architect could say, I didn't step there, God did right? But what, what are you symbolizing here? God going into his temple. So that's interesting that we have this in front of the Hyperor Temple, which is also, a, a, when you have massive footprints in front of the temple, also a good indicator that it is, in fact, a temple. The other, some, some scholars have also said that the makeup of the three-part temple resembles the three-part gates 
that we find all throughout this time period in Israel-Palestine. So for instance, Gezer, Hatzor, Megiddo, all have these triple gates. And the question is, are they sim uh, uh, sim symbolizing something? Are they saying, uh, just as you enter the temple, you're also entering the city, and they signify it with a three-part gate? Others say, no, this is just a purely military, um, there's recent military rationale behind this. What they would do is they put the front gate here, and then the city walls back here, and in order to get through the gate, um, you have to break down the walls, and then the, the host city would fill these little side chambers with soldiers, with spears and things, right? So you bust down the door, and you go through with your shield, and you go through, that's not how they fight probably, but they go through like this, and they're getting ready to fight, and all of a sudden, not only do you have to defend yourself from the front, but you got people coming at you from the sides where you're vulnerable with spears and arrows. It's hard to, to go through the gate of the city. So some people say, no, this is purely a military thing. You can see the gates, the, the towers out the front here. Um, and then other people say, no, they're trying to represent something symbolically. I don't know the answer. What I do know is that by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Solomon's temple, the idea was to make Jerusalem and the temple holy, using the elements and the, kind of the, the ideas of sacred space that we read about in Haleata. So this is all review. You've seen this slide before, so you don't have to write it down. But how do we make Jerusalem sacred? One, um, we bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Okay? Remember David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem? Now you're building a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. So that's one thing that you can do. Um, 2 Samuel 7, you have this invitation to build a royal temple, but he doesn't do it. Solomon actually comes through and builds a royal temple. <coughs> And keep in mind that that's being built in Jerusalem, the same thing, that, uh, the same place where it's supposed to be now Mount Moriah as well, uh, a site that God chose on his own, the site that Melchizedek was said to have blessed the patriarch of the Israelites, Abraham, right? Um, it said where, where Garden of Eden was supposed to be. You, you get how this works. So all these, once you get a place, once you get a little momentum, once you've got a promise from a divine promise that people believe and accept, now all of a sudden this place becomes a magnet for all these other traditions. The place where God will put his name, Deuteronomy 12. Got that? So this, now we're going to build it. Now let's look a little bit at kind of the end of Solomon. Um, David, you can roughly put, if you're going to consider him historical, he's about 1010 BC to 970. His son Solomon would take over 970, go to about 930. And this is regarded as the golden age of Israel. The reason being, not only were they successful, but they expanded their lands, and they were united. Keep in mind that shortly after Solomon, and we have it right here, <coughs> Solomon dies, and his son Rehoboam uh, comes to power. And Rehoboam has kind of like an incoming fact. Remember when Obama became president, he was young, he wasn't very experienced. So he had his advisors, the Ronald Manuals of the world, who were young, they're ornery, and you know they're, they're going to show the world, they're going to change the world. And then they also have the Dennis Axelrods, right? They have these senior advisors who have done this for a long, long time, who have advised presidents before. Okay? Rehoboam, when Solomon dies, Rehoboam has this same dilemma. Okay? How do you, if your father is just you know, 700 wives and all these concubines and all these, you know, just, how do you make yourself more magnificent? How do you live up to what your father has set up? So 
So Rehoboam has a decision to make. Do I side with my younger advisors, or do I side with my father's former advisors? His father's former advisors say, look, your dad was a glorious king, but he was terrible. He was terrifying. He enslaved your own people. They hated him. They feared him. That's why they did what he said. Lower the taxes, release some of the, the indentured slaves, your own people, and the people will love you and they'll follow you. But if you don't, um, they will see this as a power, a, a period of transition. They'll see that you're weak or that you're scared, and that's why you're you're maintaining all your father's policies, and uh, and they'll they'll won't follow you. Whereas on the other side, Rehoboam's young advisors, his buddies that he went to not college, but you know, that he went hunting with and things, to president, we hunt. Okay, never mind. Um, his, his kind of young buddies say, no, 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 you've got to set yourself apart from your dad. Whatever your dad did, you've got to do twice as much. <coughs> and so Rehoboam comes out and he says, I will not lower the taxes and I will not release my, you know, my servants. I will increase it. And he has this great line, something to the effect of, you know, you're, you're, my father whipped you with chains, I will whip you with scorpions, right? Um, and then he says this great classic line of, uh, how does it go, my my finger is as thick as my father's thigh. And finger and thigh are euphemisms in the Hebrew Bible. And I'll let you interpret it, okay? So basically he says, yeah, yeah, you thought my dad was a big deal. Well, my finger is as big as my dad's. Basically, I'm, I'm big, right? <laughs> and of course, he increases the tax burden, he upsets all the people, and they revolt. The 10 tribes in the north follow a former labor leader named Yeroboam. Jeroboam, Jeroboam. And the guys in the south, Benjamin and Judah, the two tribes, remain loyal to Rehoboam, and that includes Jerusalem. So there's this division within the kingdom. Okay? So the end of the golden age. Ten tribes to the north revolt or rebel against Rehoboam, but Rehoboam has Jerusalem. Okay? And ten tribes go to the north and set up alternative shrines. Uh, they didn't like the fact that you had, even if you were from the north, you had to go to the south to worship. So they set up uh, two shrines, one on the northernmost end of this new kingdom that's going to be called Israel, so don't get confused, right? It was all called Israel, and then after when Rehoboam takes over, it splits into two countries. The northern ten tribes retains the name Israel. The southern two tribes take the name of the largest of the two tribes, Judah. So after the end of the Golden Age, after Solomon's gone, Israel's in the north, ten tribes, Judah's in the south, two tribes. But in the south is Jerusalem. Okay. In the north, they set up two alternate shrines, one in the far north at a place called Tel Dan. You can still go there and visit these shrines. And then one in the south, Bethel. What's Bethel mean? Bet, Bet means what? House, and El means God, house of God. Remember this place? Remember this from an earlier story? Right, so it was an accepted kind of holy place shrine, and so they set that up as one, and then until then they set one up as well. Um, Pharaoh Shishak comes and invades uh, and takes the temple treasures in 925 BCE, um, but they survive. Uh, but basically what you've got moving forward is ten tribes in the north and two tribes in the south. There is a question at, as to whether or not these twelve tribes were ever truly united. But the way the Bible tells the story, they were united under David. 
We know that when David first came to power, the 12 tribes of the north didn't accept him as king. But David killed all those folks and took over, and they ended up accepting David as their unified kingdom king. Great story. Uh, okay, we're done with Solomon. Any questions? We're going to move right in.